We are studying these Sunday mornings um, Ephesians, and um, we're going to read from there together this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us, in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. May God bless his word to us today as we look at it, as, this, as we continue in <coughs> Paul's letter Uh, to these Ephesian believers. Last week, we looked at at Paul's prayer. We followed on from Paul's praise. The first week that we opened Ephesians together, and we looked at at Paul in chains, saying, blessed be God who has blessed us with every blessing in the spiritual realm. And then he started to give this long list as he started to praise God in this Trinitarian hymn of all the things that God has done for us, the fact that he's chosen us and adopted us as his children, the fact that he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, he's redeemed us and he's, he's forgiven us and he's, he's done all these amazing things in our lives and, and Paul goes off into a, into a pion of praise as he thanks God for everything that he has done for him. We said that even though external circumstances may constrain us as they did Paul, on this occasion, he was in chains, yet, yet we can still praise God. We can still thank God. We can still be used by God. It's amazing to me that Paul, in this season of his ministry, where he couldn't go to the marketplace, and he couldn't go to the synagogue, and he, he couldn't travel on his missionary journeys, and he couldn't stand in front of thousands and and preach the gospel. He couldn't stand in, in many ways the way and do the things he had done before. And yet he could still pray. And so he said, I've not stopped praying for you, uh, you Ephesian believers. I, I, since I've heard of your love and your faith, I am just constantly praying for you. And so he can pray, uh, even if he's constrained in his physical, geographical location, he can still pray and he can still praise and, and he can also still write, and he writes these letters, and it, it strikes me as we study Ephesians today, 2,000 plus years later, 
that, and Paul's writings become part of the canon of Holy Scripture. In this season of his life, Paul was more effective than he had ever been in the whole of his ministry and the whole of his life. Even though on the surface it looked like he was less effective, it looked like he was less fruitful, and yet God could still use him in this season of his life. And God can use you in every season of your life. In every season, whether it's, whether it's young or whether you're old, whether you're in the best of health or in failing health, uh, whether you are constrained geographically or emotionally or in any way whatsoever, God could still use you in this season of your life. It may be in a different way, but in the end and in the essence, God used Paul at this time through this season more than he had ever used him before. And so Paul goes from a place of praise and praising God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and saying that God had done all these things in our lives to the praise of his glory. Then goes into this prayer intercession for these Ephesian believers and he says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying not not that you'll have extra things, but you'll know what you already have. And he prayed and he said, I pray that you'll know uh, the hope to which he has called you And we talked about the calling of God on our lives, the high calling of God on all of our lives. Uh, I pray, Paul said, that that God will help you to know the hope to which he has called you. I pray that he'll help you to know the glorious inheritance that you have in the saints. And I pray for you that you will know the incomparably great power for those who believe. And we talked about that power last week and how that power, Paul said, it was demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we then move on into chapter two, there is no division, obviously, in the, in the original, in the, in the Greek. We've, we've put in chapters and we've put in verses. But Paul is carrying on. And he's basically saying, just as God showed his power by raising Christ from the dead, so he's done the same with you, you Ephesian believers. And you, you also, you were dead. You were dead, just like Christ. You were dead in your transgressions and your sins. But he has now made you alive in Christ. He's made you alive with Christ and raised you up with Christ and seated you with Christ. And so there's this flow, if you like, of what what Paul is doing here. He's saying this this is what God has done with Christ. This is how he's demonstrated his power, the power of his resurrection. But he's also demonstrated the same power the same resurrection in your life, you believers who were once dead, but now you are alive. And so that's the flow of the argument as we come into chapter two and Paul starts to look at the Gentile believers and he starts to look at the Jewish believers and he said, we all, we all were dead, but Christ has raised us. God has given us new life. So we're going to look at that this morning, what that looks like and how that can happen in our lives and how we can live in the same resurrection power of Jesus Christ as these early believers. Do you, I, I never really have liked the old kind of what do you want first, the bad news or the good news. It always strikes me as slightly sadistic. How would you like your bad news today? Would you like it fast or would you like it slow roasted? Uh, it's coming either way. I've got some bad news for you. Um, but um, do, you want it, do you want it wrapped around with a bit of good news first or do you want to get it over with? I, n- I never like kind of, do you want the good news or the bad news uh, kind of line. It's like, it's like the, the joke of the, of the, ju- the guy that, that was flying a plane and, and, and the bad news was that both engines failed at the same time. 
The good news was that he had a parachute. The bad news as he jumped out the plane was the parachute wasn't working. The good news was there was a haystack beneath him in the field that he saw approaching at a rapid speed. The bad news was there was a pitchfork in the haystack. The good news was he missed the pitchfork. The bad news was he missed the haystack. Um, so it doesn't end well. The bad news and the good news. Now what, what Paul does in this passage, he starts with the bad news. He starts with saying how bad it really is. Now there is a formation of the gospel today. The gospel means good news. Now you only really get to the good news if you really understand the bad news. Now there's a type of preaching today and a type of writing and a type of speaker and we could name names uh, that, that try and downplay the bad news. <laughs> that try and say that in the, es- in the essence and in the end, love wins and God is good and we don't need to overemphasize or talk about sin or wrongdoing or our brokenness or hell. We don't need to talk about those things. Let's just talk about a God who loves us and loves everybody and uh, is kind and is loving, but let's not cover the bad news. But you never really understand the greatness of the good news unless you really get down to the depths of how bad the bad news is. And what Paul does, he says how bad the bad news really was and is for those people that don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And I would be doing you a disservice and, and Christianity would be doing a disservice if we didn't highlight those things. We do nobody a service. We help no one by, uh, by saying it's all good and everything's nice and God's a, a kind of a nice, cuddly, grandfather-style God and there's no issues around sin or wrongdoing or an eternal destination of separation from God unless we accept the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation that's offered to us. But what Paul does, he says a few things. First of all, he says we are dead without Christ. He says it, he says it in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He repeats it in verse 5 where he talks about being made alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Now we might look at people today and we might, we might look at the intellectuals amongst us. We might look at those great scientific brains, uh, those great, you know, science has had quite highlight in these last years of some very, very, very clever people who can do amazing things with, uh, with uh, vaccinations and and studying science, I'm, I'm amazed when I look at some of these characters, how clever they are, how brainy they are. We have some very, very clever intellectual people living on this earth. People, I, I sometimes listen to Desert Island Disc. I was listening to one scientist uh, describing how she works with viruses. And I mean, I, I couldn't begin to understand what she was really talking about. She was so clever. And... Uh, It doesn't matter how intellectual you are, how clever you are, or it doesn't matter how famous you are. Um, You can be really famous. And and these days, of course, they call them influencers, don't they? You you get get your social media following, and if you get several hundred thousand followers, you can head off to Dubai and pose for some pictures and uh, sell some products, and you can be an influencer. You can be so famous uh, of basically doing nothing these days or being on some kind of celebrity show, or being on the front 
covers of a magazine. You can be the most beautiful person. You can be a model and, and, uh, and travel the world and, and make a lot of money. You can be all of these things. Or you could be an ordinary Joe. You could be a mum or a dad or a family or a single person trying to make it in life, just trying to be a good person and not really harm anybody and try and live by certain standards and be good to your neighbor and you can meet some really, really lovely people who do lovely things for people. And it doesn't matter where you are on the gamut, but what, what Paul says is, without Christ, without God, we're dead. We are spiritually dead. We are dead in our sin. We're dead in our falling short of God's standards, transgressions, whatever word you want to use. There's two words used in the Greek. One means kind of missing the target. The other one means falling short. We are failures before God in life. We are spiritually dead. We are the walking dead. We are, we are corpses, Paul says, in our spiritual condition. Elsewhere, he says, we are without God and without hope in this world. And he paints this picture that we are unresponsive to God. And he says we are, we are dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live when we followed. And he, he, he talks then about three things. that He says you're not only dead without Christ, spiritually dead, but you are enslaved. And he, 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 he lists three areas, three of our enemies, if you like, which have been described as the world, the flesh, and the devil. But they're all here in the passage. He, he speaks of the ways of the world. He says, uh, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. The world, the world system. Uh, John Stott speaks of the world system. And he speaks of intellectual pride and false ambition and rejection of known truth and but the, the world that we live in, the culture that we live in, the, the ways of this world, there are certain cultural norms, there are ways of thinking as we look out on our society today in the, in the United Kingdom or in different places around the, the world. There are, there are prevailing cultural norms, there are prevailing thought patterns, the ways of this world. In Romans chapter 12, it's called the mold of the world. Don't let the, don't let the world press you into its mold. And, uh, and cultures... Uh, develop thinking patterns and ideas of what is right and what is wrong. And of course, today, you know, whether it's, whether it's materialism or, or whether it's kind of this cancellation culture that if you say the wrong thing, think the wrong thing, according to a certain progressive group of people, you will be cancelled. You will be no platforms. You will be shut down. And there are the ways of this world, and they change. I've just recently uh, read a book by Carl Truman about the modern self and the development of certain patterns of belief in our, in our society today that maybe 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, thinking patterns were very different. But Paul says, Paul says that you, you walked in these ways. You, you're affected by them. We are all affected by them. And, and it's the world that we live in. It's the, it's the water that we swim in. It's the oxygen that we breathe. It's the ideas that are taught in our universities and in our schools. It's the, it's the patterns of thinking that permeate society. And as Christians, sometimes those patterns of thinking, they are completely contrary to the teaching of the gospel. They're completely in opposition to, to godly ways. Romans chapter 1 says that society suppresses the truth of God for a lie. 
And these are the ways of the world, and they are very powerful. But it, it doesn't stop there. But Paul goes on to say, and he says, you, you still live in these ways of the world, and also uh, you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The, the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's talking here not just about a force of evil, but a person, a personality of evil who we would call Satan or we would call Lucifer or we would call the devil. It's a very real spiritual person, a force, a fallen angel, the ruler of the kingdom of the air and, and his demonic forces. They are at work today. And C.S. Lewis, when he wrote the screw tape letters, said that we're in, in danger of two things. There's one completely dismissing uh, the demonic and dismissing the devil as non, non-existent or also going too far and giving him far too much attention and, and far too much credence. But he is at work. Satan is at work in people's lives. And, uh, and Paul says, the rule of the kingdom of air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. The Greek says energeo. It's the same verb that is used in chapter one for God's power being at work in Christ. The energeo of God and being at work in us. But we can be affected by and uh, under the influence of uh, satanic thinking and satanic ways and demonic ways. Uh, they're oppressed by him. And Paul says that is also at work in people's lives. So he says here, as for you, you were, you were dead. That's the first thing in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the world, that's the first thing. And of the rule of the kingdom of the air, that's the second thing. The spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. And, and the third thing is us, our natural inclination to do the wrong thing. All of us, Paul says, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And so we also are affected by just our propensity to do wrong, our desires and our thoughts. And uh, <coughs> Paul says here, that we also, we gratified the cravings of our sinful nature. We followed its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature objects of wrath. He says here, first of all, he says you, and then he says all of us. He's speaking to the Gentiles, and then he says all of us, including us Jews, all of us. We are all of us in this together. We I was thinking of the scripture, uh, all of us, all, we all like sheep <laughs> have gone astray, the Bible says in Isaiah. Each of us has gone their own way and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of us all. All of us, all of us have gone our own way. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, of God's standard. All of us. Um, and there is no one, if you want to take it in the negative, there's no one righteous. No, not one. We're all in this together. We're all in this condition together, Paul says. It doesn't matter where you are on the intellectual scale. It doesn't matter where you are on the, on the beauty scale. It doesn't matter where you are on the influential scale, on the riches scale, on the righteousness scale, how nice a person you are. We're all in the same boat. 
we're all under these threefold enemies of, of the way of the world, the thinking of the world, the culture of the world, under satanic activity in the world, the rule of the kingdom of the air, and even under our internal natural desires to do wrong things. You don't have to teach your kids to do wrong. They'll do it on their own. So the world, the flesh, the devil, external, internal. But what Paul is saying is that that is your condition without God. That is what, where people are at without knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. They are dead. They are enslaved. And they are also children of wrath. They are condemned. We all, by nature, are children of wrath. And that wrath is, is anger. So is God angry with us? Is, do we, are we just under the hand of, a, of a, an angry, nasty, vindictive God who's angry at everybody for doing wrong all the time? Is, is that what Paul is saying? But the wrath of God, the anger of God, is his personal hatred of evil and injustice and unrighteousness. His view of sin and what it does to people's lives, how it destroys Jesus said, you know, Satan has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what sin does in people's lives. But I have come that I would give you life in all of its fullness. So when God looks at sin and when God looks at wrongdoing and when God looks at our world and our worldview under those conditions, he hates it. He hates it with a righteous hatred, with the wrath of God, where he hates injustice. And we have this image in us, the image of God, the echo of the image of God, because we hate injustice too, deep down. That's why we have horns in our cars. We can press our justice button when somebody cuts us up in traffic. We can say, I want justice, as we pip our horn. We want justice. We hate injustice, because that's something of the image of God in us. We hate injustice, and God hates injustice. And God hates sin and God hates uh, the, the effect of sin on people's lives. So we are, we are, if you want the bad news, and it is really bad news, Paul says, we are dead. We are li the living dead without Christ. We, we, are, we are enslaved in, in, by the world, by, by our natural self, by the flesh, and by the devil. And not only are we dead, and not only are we enslaved, but we are condemned. We are by nature children of wrath. So Paul has painted this picture of what we are by nature. But then in the middle of this passage come these two beautiful words that start to cause a great reversal of our condition. And they are these two words, but God. But God. And what Paul starts to do then is to really, really tell them the good news. And it's not just good news, as we've heard this morning. It's amazing news. And it's amazing news because the bad news is so bad. <laughs> because we cannot save ourselves. Because we cannot recreate ourselves. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootlaces. We can't do anything to get out of this condition. But God can and God does. And so... God has entrusted to us a message of good news which gives life to the dead and it releases the captives and it provides forgiveness for the condemned. That is the good news that we have and that we share and that Paul shares in this passage. So he says then, 
but, and the NIV splits up the words, but God. In the ESV it doesn't. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ through faith. In Christ Jesus. But God, because of his great love, and he's rich in mercy, you know, the mercy of God It says in Romans 9.16, it does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It doesn't depend on our effort or our desire. It depends on God's mercy. And and Paul writes about this to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1.13-16, he says this. He says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. For that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, God shows us mercy. And in verse 7, it says, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. There's four words that are used in this passage that describe why Jesus does what he does in our lives and how he does it. And those four words are are mercy, they are love, they are grace, and they are kindness. That's how God acts towards us. The God of wrath, the God who hates sin, is also the God of love. The God who loves us so much as we've heard this morning, the greatest theological truth is that God loves us. The Bible tells us so. But his love, his mercy, his kindness, and his grace. I read this week of a a survivor, Carl Williams, who was in the 7-7 bombings in London. He was in the tube uh, on the Piccadilly line when the bomb went off. And uh, he was injured, and he lay on the floor of the tube And he thought that he was going to die. And he said, I have never felt so alone in all of my life as I did in that moment, lying there after this bomb had gone off. And he said, some woman, I don't know who she was, I don't know where she came from, but she reached over and she said, can I hold your hand? And she lay with him in this tube, in this carriage, and she reached out and together they lay there and she held his hand And he said, I think at that moment she saved my life. And I think of the mercy of Jesus Christ. When we were lying in in our dead condition, when we were lying in our sins, Jesus came down to the earth and he lowered himself, even to death on a cross. And he basically said, can I hold your hand? Can I lift you up? Can I raise you up from death to life, from uh, condemnation to freedom? 
from slavery to freedom. This is what Christ did for us when he came. He offered us his mercy. And he didn't do it because of our, of our worthiness. He didn't do it because of our merit. We, there was no merit in us. There's nothing that merited him doing this. He did it because of his unmerited favor, which is his grace. So he, he showed us his kindness, and he showed us his grace, and he showed us his mercy, and he showed us his love. He held our hands, and he raised us up, and he offered us and gave us new life. Now there's a, a verb here in, in the Greek, or a prefix, that says three things that he did for us. It's S-Y-N, sin, talking about that he did three, he did three things that through Christ that he did with us also, so Paul says, here he says, he made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly realms. That threefold lifting up uh, with Christ, he, he raised Christ, but he raised us from the dead as well. He, he exalted him. And he seated him at the right hand of the Father. And he did the same with us. And he did it so that he could show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, as we looked at what he did uh, for Christ, it says that he could show the incomparable riches of his power. That's what he did when he raised Christ from the dead. It's, it's, it says in the, in the original that he did so to show the incomparable greatness of his power and then when he raised us with Christ it says he did so to show the incomparable riches of his grace towards us both ways it's incomparable and it is the work of God it's not something that we've done that we deserve it is something that God does that God initiates not because of our merit but because of his unmerited favor and so he raises us up with Christ he seats us with Christ in the heavenly realms, this realm of spiritual reality. And he does it to show his kindness in Christ Jesus. And then we come to the essence of the gospel in verse 8 and 9 and 10, where Paul goes over it all again. And he says, because it's by grace you've been saved. It's by grace, this favor of God that you never deserved, that you could never earn, by grace you've been saved. And this, he says, is through faith. It's by putting your trust in Christ. And this is not from yourselves. The faith is not from yourselves. The grace is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works. Nobody can boast. Nobody can say I was worthy. Nobody can say I worked my way in to God's kingdom. I worked my way into becoming a Christian because I was good enough. Nobody can say that. No one can boast. None of us can stand here today and say, I saved myself. I was good enough. Because I was dead. I couldn't save myself. I was a corpse. There's no way that I could. And here it says that we, we are created, this creation language, we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Just as I couldn't create myself in the first place, I can't recreate myself into being born of the Spirit of God. Just as I had nothing to do with my birth, I didn't make it happen, I didn't create it or make it uh, uh, happen in some way, 
I was born, it happened to me. And so when I am born of the Spirit of God, when I become a Christian, it's not something I will ever earn. It's not something I will ever initiate. It is something initiated by God because he is kind and because he's loving and because he's merciful and because he's gracious and because he gives me what I don't deserve. He takes me when I'm dead and he makes me alive and he does it with Christ. And he seats me with Christ in heavenly places. And he will do that for anyone through faith in Jesus Christ. But not by works so that no one can boast. We are created for works but not by works. We are saved for works but not by works. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. It is by grace that we have been saved. It is by faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. So this passage this morning, it shares the good news and the bad news. The bad news is actually worse than most people realize. And it's the bad news that we have to share because it shows us how hopeless we are. Without hope, without God in this world, it doesn't matter how beautiful we are, how intellectual we are, how gifted we are, how rich we are. It doesn't matter. We are those three things that Paul says we are. We are dead without Christ, spiritually dead. We are enslaved without Christ by the world and its systems, by our natural inclinations and thoughts and desires, by the world, the flesh, by the devil and his oppressive works in people's lives that are energeo, they are working in children of disobedience. So the bad news is bad, but there's this massive turning point in Paul's argument where he says, but God, but God. And we've heard this morning through some of those words, but God, God can work in anybody, in any situation, can reach anyone. As we heard, he would go after anyone. There's no, there's no place too far from God's mercy and God's grace, and God's love, and God's kindness. There's no wrongdoing that is beyond his reach. There's no place where you're too lost or too hopeless. There are people sometimes within earshot of these words that you feel so hopeless, so hopeless. You think life is not worth living sometimes. But there is hope in God. There is new life in God. There is, there is a future in God. There is grace in God and you know what God would like to do in your life he'd like to hold you up as a trophy of his grace he'd like to lift you up out of your out of your mess and out of your out of your hiddenness and out of your hopelessness he'd like to lift you up and he'd like to clean you off and he'd like to instill hope in your heart he'd like to lift you up like he did with Paul he said Paul said to Timothy I was the worst of sinners I was the most hopeless of cases but God did this in me so that through this work in my life, he could hold me up as a trophy of grace. And if people could say if he could do it in Paul, he could do it in me. Yeah. If he could do it in Paul, he could do it in me. Yeah. If he could do it in each one of our lives, we are all trophies of grace. And, and, and there is no one beyond his reach. And if you feel hopeless this morning, if you feel dead inside, if you feel apart from God, if you feel oppressed and like there's a darkness over you, if you feel any of these things, then there is hope for you. And the hope is 
It's not that you'll earn it, not that you'll try and be good enough, not that you'll try and scrape your way into being a good enough person, that God might love you enough, that you could be a called a Christian and you could come to church. It's that you come as you are, you let God's kindness wash over you, you let his mercy wash over you, you let his grace wash over you, you let his love fill your heart and he will start to change you and rescue you and lift you up with Christ in heavenly places, in the realm of spiritual reality. All of this is God's work in you. It's all what God has done, not what you will ever do. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ. All you have to do as you lay there injured is put your hand in Christ's hand and accept his offer of love and salvation and he'll do the rest. He'll do the rest. He'll take care of the rest. Just put your hand in his. Let him change your heart. Let him change your life. Let him come in. Let him turn your life around. Let him lift you up. Let him seat you with Christ in heavenly places. The mercy, the grace, the kindness, and the goodness of God. I'll tell you this morning, the bad news is worse than you think it is. But the good news is better than it ever could have been because of what Christ has done on the cross. And this is what we call, we Christians, call the gospel. That just means good news. <laughs> so we won't downplay the bad news, but we'll tell you what God will do if you turn to him. I'd love to pray for you this morning, and then we're going to break bread together as a church family. But if you would like to place your hand in Christ's hand this morning, if you would like to receive the mercy and the kindness and the love and the forgiveness of God, and you can do so this morning. I'm going to metaphorically take your hand. I'm going to place it in Christ's hand. I'm going to metaphorically take you. I've got nothing to give you. Christ has got everything to give you. I'm just going to introduce you to Jesus and say, go to him and give your life to him and he'll sort you out. He'll help you. And even this morning, if you do that, I'm just going to pray that the Lord will infuse hope in your heart where there is hopelessness. And where there's death, I'm going to pray for life. And where there's uh, darkness, I'm going to pray for light. Where there's heaviness, I'm going to pray for lightness. And I'm going to pray for a turnaround of your life and your situation. So let me introduce you to Jesus. And let me place your hand in his. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning as we've spoken from your word and spoken of this tremendous transformation, I think every one of us could be a trophy of grace. Every one of us could be Christ's workmanship. That means a masterpiece, a piece of art, a creation of Christ, that we could show off the good works that God has prepared for us to do. I pray for those this morning who feel hopeless, who feel dark, who feel oppressed. Lord, I pray that you would take hold of their hand. I pray that you would bring new life to them. I pray that you will save them, Lord, because of your unmerited favor. And I pray that you turn their life around and give them new hope and new life. And if that's you this morning, just say, Jesus, help me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, take my hand and lead me. And I believe if you pray that this morning, he will hear you and he will answer you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will seal the deal in people's hearts and lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.